This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor Matt Myers. On today's show, we're going to talk about how Javi Baez is having a very unexpected MVP caliber season, how Jock Peterson has made a really interesting turnaround, how Bryce Harper has made a pretty good turnaround of his own, Harrison Bader is the most interesting outfielder you don't know, and what are the Rockies doing for that rotation that pretty much no other team is doing? We're going to start with Javier Baez. I think it's fair to say he's a MVP candidate for the league this year, right? I mean, it's kind of a weird season in the in National League. Um, if you look at wins above replacement, number one right now, Matt Carpenter. I wish we could go back to our show from like two months ago mm-hmm. when we were trying to diagnose why he was so terrible and say, no, really, in August, you're going to consider Matt Carpenter an MVP candidate. But Javier Baez has to be right in that mix, right? Uh, no question. And it's uh, kind of fascinating, his transformation as a player, because, you know, he's always been this this intense free swinger, and that hasn't changed. Uh, well, more on that in a second. But he's sort of found a way to make it work, that he just has such control of the barrel and such quick hands and strength that he's able to – he's become this guy who basically swings at everything, doesn't really walk, and it doesn't matter. For the last, like, three seasons, he's been this guy where it's like – He's undeniably entertaining. Like, he's so much fun to watch. His defense is fantastic. Uh, when he gets a hold of one, he can crush it like anybody else. But I was never actually convinced he was good. Like, he'd never had a league average hitting season before this year. You know, he was kind of more hype than than substance, but that's changed. He's, like, legitimately been great this year. His line right now, 298, 331, 585 <clears throat> slugging. Uh, that is an enormous uh, increase in slugging percentage. And what's weird to me is, like, if you had said coming into the year, Javi Baez is going to have a great year, what's the first thing you would have thought of? Oh, he's swinging less. He's not chasing everything. And that's kind of the exact opposite. Like he's swinging more at everything. And we're going to go through all the stats. But the answer here is I don't really understand why this is happening. It's so weird that a guy can swing more than he already was uh, and somehow drop his strikeout rate, which he's done 28% last year, 24% this year, and up his slugging percentage by 105 points like it doesn't make sense it's not how this is supposed to work i mean that's, i mean and basically this is all slugging like his other numbers are all like last year he had 273 317 480 year before that 273 314 423 this year it's 298 331 585 so it's like it's everything else like the the singles and walk rate were kind of similar so he's got a little extra babbit but it's almost all power yeah and if you look at his numbers uh he's swinging more overall swing percentage is up from 56 percent to 61 percent He's swinging more in the zone. That's good. 70% last year, 78% this year. But he's also chasing more outside the zone, uh, 45% uh, up to about 47%. He has the highest chase rate in baseball, minimum 500 pitches seen outside the zone, 47%. That's above Salvador Perez and Jorge Alfaro and Corey Dickerson. And you think, okay, well, maybe he's finally laying off those sliders. This is the thing that's been eating him up forever. Uh, No, his chase rate on out-of-the-zone sliders is 47%. It's about the same as it always is uh, in 15 and 16. It's up four points from last year. Going after curves outside the zone, 53%, 56%, and this year, 63%. 
but he's going off after more fastballs in the zone a little bit. Uh, it was always like in the high 60s. Now he's going after 72% of them. I do have one theory here. He is so much more aggressive on the first pitch. In 2015, he went after the first pitch 28% of the time, then 27%, then 34%. This year, 51% on the first pitch. That's the highest think, first pitch. I think you might have just solved your own well, mystery. I, I, but like, it still doesn't make sense because the theory behind that would be, okay, he knows he's going to get eaten up by these two-strike sliders outside the zone, so I'm going to go after more first pitch strikes, which is great. I love it. But the rest of it is still happening. Like He's still going after all the sliders. So I think that makes some sense behind it, but... I also just sort of wonder if he's being the most Javi Baez and just swinging as hard as he can, and it's working a little better this year. Hey, you know, uh, it's working for sure. You know, we uh, you talked about MVP uh, on our uh, MLB.com. We do every week we do an awards watch where we cycle through Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, and MVP. So last time we did um, MVP, which was about 10 days ago, uh, he ranked fourth amongst our panel. We, 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 uh, let all of our reporters vote. Um, so the last time we did it, it was uh, Freddie Freeman in first, followed by, for now, it was Freeman and Arenado in a virtual tie, and then a big drop-off to Lorenzo Cain, then Baez and Matt Carpenter tied. Now, granted, this was this was on uh, August 1st. So even in just nine days, with like Baez staying hot and Carpenter continuing to be, um, I'm curious to see how much the next one changes. I still think it's, I still think it's Freeman's to lose. Uh, especially if the Braves make the playoffs, but um, a lot, a lot can change in the last six. We've seen many years where the uh, MVP, uh, MVP has, has sort of been shaped by the stretch drive. It does feel like the hype train is coming from Chicago and Denver, right? Like Cubs fans are like, "Well, Baez is obviously the MVP." Rockies fans always sort of have this inferiority complex that no one will vote for their guy for MVP. Um, I feel like those are the two guys with a little bit more of the hype than Freeman. And you know, Carpenter, if he keeps hitting like this, I don't know how you're going to stop him. But I guess if you know if you're one of the voters who says you know you want guys to make the playoffs, I will let's draw I'll drop some trivia on you. Okay. Javier Baez, if he he still has a 331 OBP, which isn't high, it's probably you know league average ish, but it's extremely low for an MVP. Can you name the last time an MVP had an uh, OBP of below 331? Uh can you give me like a decade? Is it recent ish or am I going back to the 50s here? Uh 1980s. Um that's a great question. Kirk Gibson in 88 no he was 377 oh really i just remembered he had like an okay year that got kind of pumped up the answer to this question is that i don't actually know but i could probably name like eight of the mvps if you really want me to. it's go a really this. it's a really famous or infamous mvp winner uh, uh andre dawson 87 correct all right yeah there, he had a uh also a cub uh 287 328 568 line he from a last place team but he hit 49 home runs yeah so but the the, the slash line is remarkably similar to what uh Javi Baez is putting up this year. Also, I mean, Javi Baez is dynamic in the field. He plays multiple positions. He's got some base running value. He's in, He is becoming the player people thought he was two years ago. He used to be, he kind of reminded me of, um, for NBA fans, uh, Jason Williams, White Chocolate, who like wasn't actually that good, but he was so exciting that people just like, like well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he's not that good. He's so much fun to watch, and that's what Javi Baez was, but now he's actually become legitimately valuable awesome player is this version of him like off-brand vladimir guerrero kind of i mean this version is like on brand but <laughs> <laughs> so you brought up his uh his lowish on base percentage i i ran one of my favorite leaderboards ever okay 
It's really hard to hit this well and not walk. He has 25 home runs and 17 walks, which is ridiculous. So I went all the way back to 1920, basically the last century of baseball. And I looked for similar seasons to what Javi Baez is doing right now. And the way I defined that was very simply uh, having a weighted runs created plus of at least 138, which is what Javi Baez has. So 100 is league average. That means he's 38 percentage points better than average. And having a walk rate below 4%, which is also what Javi Baez has. And the entire history of baseball, back to 1920, only three other guys have had seasons like that. Kirby Puckett in 1988, Felipe Alou in 1966, and Carl Reynolds, who I legitimately can say I've never heard of, for the 1930 Chicago White Sox. Those three guys and Javi Baez this year are the only people who have ever really done this. And that sort of makes me wonder how sustainable this is. <laughs> well, it's hard to do this. But Kirby Puckett, you know, he... he... This was kind of his hitting profile for his career, right? Like he was a high average guy who didn't. I mean, this was. I mean, I guess it is, he usually walked like fifty times a year, but he was never a big walk guy. It just so happened in nineteen eighty eight, he walked twenty three times, but his final line was three fifty six, three seventy five, five forty five. He finished third in the MVP voting behind Jose Canseco, his uh, memorable forty forty season, and Mike Greenwell. Wow. Yeah. Who claims he was? Who is his since like you know like been like an angry old man in, in public saying, I should have had that MVP because uh, Conseco was uh, juicing. We've had a lot of angry old men in public this week. Here's the interesting thing about Baez, though. Last year, uh, he sort of overperformed a little bit. Last year, his expected weighted on base, which includes strikeouts, walks, quality of contact, was 290, and his actual weighted on base is 326. So there's reason to think that he was maybe overperforming a little bit. This year, his expected weighted on base is 369. His actual is 379. So, you know, you could say that he's earning most of it. But what I found interesting is that's a, a, an improvement of 79 points. And that's the fourth biggest improvement in baseball. One team has each of the top three of the biggest improvers. Steve Pierce, Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts. <laughs> well, we, I mean, we knew, we talked early in the year that, that uh, Bogarts in particular and Betts were in line for, uh, it, for, for big turnarounds. If you know me at all, you know I've had an enormous man crush on Steve Pierce for about six years, and this just makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, show, I mean, Baez kind of shows the difference in, in the way front offices have evolved. Because obviously the, you know, the Cubs led by Theo Epstein are a, you know, a quote-unquote progressive front office. And there was a time when progressive front offices were, really wanted a lineup full of guys who had plate discipline. And they would almost like eschew guys, players who didn't fit that mold. And, you know, the the mid-2000s Red Sox were kind of among those teams. But we now see that, you know, teams are seeing beyond just that. Because I've seen some pieces writ, wrote, written um, some from Chicago media sort of being like, well, Baez won't, you know, win MVP because people are too obsessed with OBP. And it's like it's not really the case anymore. The game has evolved. They see that he has a lot of value beyond just the fact that, he, you know, okay, he doesn't walk. Great. That's a weakness. But he does everything else very well. I don't think we've ever used the word issue on this show before. So thank you for raising the vocabulary. Um, Jock Peterson, by the way, is a very similar story. We're going to get to him in just one second. But first, this episode of the StatCast podcast is presented by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage is simple, so you can understand the details and get approved in as few as eight minutes. Apply simply, understand fully. Mortgage confidently at rocketmortgage.com. Based on a sample of Rocket Mortgage clients who met qualifying approval criteria and specific loan requirements at the time of application, results may vary. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Jack Peterson, I think, is kind of a similar-ish story. He's certainly not the defender that Javi Baez is, right? But he's always been this like big power, free-swinging guy who struck out probably too much. And if you look at the numbers this year, he's kind of pulled off a pretty interesting trick. 
Last year, I'll put it this way, in his rookie season in 2015, he struck out 29% of the time. This year, he's striking out under 17% of the time. He's cut that almost in half, and he's had an enormous increase in slugging. If you look at his last year, he had a 407 slugging. It wasn't really a great year. Got demoted to AAA in August, was left off the NLDS roster, did hit three home runs in the World Series. So there was that. Uh, this year, he's hitting 258, 333, 500. 40. Now, if you look at every hitter who had 300 plate appearances both this year and last year, of which there are 178, he has the third biggest slugging percentage increase in baseball behind Mookie Betts, there he is again, and Matt Carpenter. And Jock Peterson's right after that, slugging 540. He's also got the 17th largest strikeout percentage decrease, actually right below Javi Baez. Uh, so these guys are, are somewhat similar to me. But it's interesting because I think among a lot of Dodger fans, Jock Peterson was sort of left for dead for a while. Like, he came up as like, the center field golden boy and then we discovered he wasn't really a good center fielder because he's kind of slow and um i think when they had too many outfielders like they thought tolls would be in the mix and verdugo would be in the mix they're like oh peterson's getting traded now he's like a semi-regular left fielder sort of platooning with matt kemp and i think he's been a big part of uh what's been a very interesting dodger season so far he i mean also if i recall correctly and i'm bringing this i'm trying to look this up now he has huge platoon splits Yes. Traditionally, is that is that I'm looking to see how much that's maintained this year. Well, he doesn't face lefties. That's right? what I'm saying. So they, it's, it's not like an 86 percent platoon rate or something like that. Which has, is what they, he's what they should have done with Andre Ethier like 10 years ago. He has uh, 45 plate appearances against lefties, zero home runs. He's six for 43 with zero home runs against lefties this year. But it's smart. They they're I mean, it's obviously going to sort of put a ceiling on his ultimate value and what he'll probably earn as a player. But in terms of his value to the Dodgers right now as a cost-controlled asset, they're putting him in a position to succeed. And so his numbers look a lot better than he, they may have like looked last year when he wasn't necessarily shielded as much against against uh, lefties. I hate to call him a swing changer because he's a no- notorious tinkerer. He's always doing something new swing. It seems like he has a new swing like every four weeks. Uh, but if you look at his numbers, he's definitely hitting the ball in the air a lot more. The ground ball rate down from 47% to 40%, fly ball rate up from 35% to 43%. If you want to look at it in terms of launch angle, up from 10 to 15 degrees. Not really hitting the ball any harder. I think he's just striking. He's hitting the ball more, and he's hitting the ball in the air. And for a guy who already hit the ball pretty hard, that's kind of what you want to do. I actually found this really interesting. He is destroying fastballs this year. Last year, fastballs ate him up. He hit 191 with a 395 slugging against fastballs this year, 306 with a 641 slugging again against that, fastballs, play. that's massive. Um, and it's funny because he's actually way worse on breaking pitches. Last year, 230 batting average, 446 slugging. This year, 145 and a 316 slugging. So it seems like, I mean, you know, sort of hypothesizing here, it seems almost as much of a approach change as anything, maybe like selling out for fastballs, um, knowing that those are pitches he can crush when he, when he gets them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably right. And for a guy who seemed like he was going to get forgotten, he's now that Matt Kemp is struggling, he's playing a pretty enormous role on the Dodgers team, which is, it's it's been a lot of weird up and downs uh, for him. Speaking of up and downs, have you noticed that Bryce Harper is good again? Well, I read someone wrote something on MLB.com about this yeah. last week, so I, I was aware. High quality article, I'm told. Bryce Harper, we don't need to tell you about his struggles this year. Um, I think this is when his agent, Scott Boris, said that the shifts were discriminatory against lefties because he was getting eaten up by it. He is hitting this year so far, 234, 378, 501. And if you ignore the batting average, that's a 130 weighted runs created plus. It's like a four-win season. And it's amazing that that is looked at as an enormous disappointment. Like, I think that tells you a lot about Bryce Harper, that an objectively good season seems like a total disaster. But 
if you look at him uh, since the All-Star game, he's hitting 339, 447, 677 slugging. That is the eighth best line in Major League Baseball. Uh, That's a pretty good data point. Him, along with Javi Baez, to refute the fact of a home run derby curse, because it's not a real thing that exists. Also, Reese Hoskins has been awesome. But Max Muncy! I'm shocked that Max Muncy isn't maintaining his first half production. Who could have ever seen that coming? Um, And then since June 21, and I picked that date somewhat arbitrarily, but because on June 20th, his stat line bottomed out for the season. He went 0 for 4 against the Orioles. His line was never worse than it was on June 20th. Since that day, sitting 279, a 432 on base, a 574 slugging. It's almost two months ago since June 21. He has turned it around. I don't think people quite uh, think of it that way because his season-long batting average is still low and the narrative around him and the Nationals is still pretty poor. I wonder if some of those teams we were talking about who wanted to trade for him regret not making the move to do so. Um, but what I, I want to know why. Like, yes, he's talented. That never went away. Like, what changed about Harper? So if you take that June 20th date and use that as your before and after, right? So he's walking more, right? 17% before, 20% after. He's striking out more. This is the weirdest thing. He's whiffing way more. When he was, quote-unquote, bad, he had a 23% strikeout rate. Now that he's crushing the ball, he's a 30% strikeout rate. Baseball is very weird sometimes. Not everything fits together. He's not hitting more or fewer grounders, same rate. It's not really hitting it harder. This is interesting, though. He is using all fields more. This kind of goes to the uh, the shift idea. He went opposite field 24% of the time before, 38% of the time after. Oh, interesting. That's interesting to me. Um, I don't know if this affects the way teams approach him, because I wrote this like five days ago, uh, and then at the time, he was seeing an identical amount of shifts, 54% before and 54% after. But that's changed now that I've included the last week. Now it's 49% after. He's only had a 20% shift rate against him over the last two weeks. I don't know if that's because teams think he's going to go opposite field or because the teams he's played, like the the Reds, Braves, and Mets, are three of the bottom 10 shift teams anyway. So I don't really know the answer to that. Um, But it is interesting. He's trying to go opposite field more. He's also seeing a lot more fasters. uh, Excuse me, a lot more fastballs. Fasters, that's a new Faster fastballs. (laughs) Before, he was seeing 51% fastballs at an average of 93 miles an hour. Now he's seeing 57% fastballs at an average of 94.3 miles an hour. That's cool. And then my favorite thing here is he's been more productive as he's been worse outside the strike zone. Well, uh, we've, we've talked about this before. Yeah. Like you're, when on bad pitches, you're better off not right. making contact. Well, th- this goes to the strike unless zone. You're, unless you're Javi Baez. <laughs> well, I, unless it's two strikes. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know that that's actually something he's doing on purpose. Um, obviously, I don't need to tell anybody listening to the show it's better to make contact inside the strike zone. But for Harper... He is hitting 287 with a 660 slugging inside the zone, a buck 15 with a 156 slugging outside the zone. Don't make contact with garbage pitches is a pretty good strategy if you can do it. Are you buying the new old whatever Bryce Harper? Definitely, of course. Um, <laughs> and you know, I mean the 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 NL East race is gonna get, gonna get interesting. The three team race at the top. I think the Nats. Uh, are gonna make it competitive just what, because do you I, have the standings in front of you. What, yes, what I do. It's um, we got. Um, the Nationals are playing the Cubs in about two hours from the time we uh, broadcast it, so that might change by the time. The Phillies are in first. The Braves are one game behind, and then the Nats are five and a half behind the Phillies. Um, and we'll get more. We'll get to more on this later. We'll. T- I want to talk a little bit about some of the the toughest remaining schedules amongst. Uh, let's do. No, let's do it right now. Let's do it right now. Okay. Well, right now of the we in a piece that's on MLB.com today, Matt Kelly just ranked the all thirty teams based on their schedules the rest of the way. Right. So. Just to give some full context, sadly for the Orioles, that is, they have the toughest remaining schedule. That's unfair. I mean, that so, deck is stacked. Yeah, so if, you, if you're if uh, you wondering who's going to get the number one pick in the draft, 
It's going to be Baltimore. It's probably going to be Baltimore. Um, did you tell me their their final week of the season? Yankees, Red Sox, and Astros? Yes. That's brutal. Um, and the Mariners have the toughest remaining schedule for any quote-unquote contender, so keep that in mind. As for the um, the Nationals, they rank 24th in all of baseball in terms of remaining schedule. So 60 right? the easiest. Yeah, 60 easiest. Um, so the Phillies are above them. They have the um, – let's see. I just had them here. Sorry, I'm uh, shuffling some papers. But um, the Phillies come in at tied for 15th, and the uh, – the Braves are – where are the Braves? This is good radio. Good good <laughs> podcasting, guys. This is great podcast. Braves are tied for 15th as well. So, I mean, the, the so they have a slight edge in strength of schedule. They're going to have some head-to-heads. You know, they're in the same division. The Strasburg thing is a big issue. Um, him not really being able to pitch is a big issue. But um, I still think the Nats, as a whole, their roster is enough. But just I mean, Harper's getting going now. Soto is still somehow like the best player in baseball that's kind of – I think he's kind of underrated. Um, he is underrated. Um, I'm out. I'm out on the Nationals. Really? I, their their bullpen is a huge problem to me. Right? Doolittle's hurt. I don't know. If that's true. I yeah. don't know if there's yeah. Kelvin Herrera is hurt. I guess that's they, true. They dumped Sean Kelly under some bizarre circumstances, and he ended up with Oakland. We're going to talk about the Oakland bullpen next week. Uh, they traded Brandon Kinsler under some weird circumstances, and now they've got Brian Madsen. I guess. That's yeah, I guess that's, that's, that, a good, that that's a good point. That is a, that's that's a good point. Um, yeah, the A's somehow just picking up Kelly and Fernando Rodney, sort of like on the sly to sort of build like. A, a, and then after trading for Familia, yeah, that's a really deep bullpen. We're, we're going to talk about the A's bullpen uh, next week in great detail. I promise you. Let's talk about Harrison Bader for a second. This is going to be cool because there's actually uh, I meant to say this at the top. I'm going to give you a sneak preview of some new Statcast metrics that are coming because it makes Harrison Bader look very good. Uh, some top level stuff. Harrison Bader is an outfielder for the Cardinals. He is a league average hitter this year. He's a rookie actually, and he is tied for second in baseball in outs above average. That's our Statcast outfield defensive range metric. Number one is Billy Hamilton at plus 15. Bader is at plus 14, tied with Ender and Ciarte and Adam Engel. Uh, it's not just us. He's also third in the majors in defensive runs saved. He is first in catch percentage added. Now, here's the difference. Outs above average is a counting stat. You kind of need to play a lot to compile them. Catch percentage added is the rate version of that. So the idea here is that based on the difficulty of batted balls hit to him, an average outfielder would be expected to catch 85% of his balls. He's actually caught 94% of the balls hit his way. That's a, a value add of plus nine points. That's the best in baseball. Matt's boy, Jake Marisnik is number two Woo. at plus seven. Kane is third at plus six. And there's a bunch of guys at plus five, including Inciarte, Hamilton, and Steven Duggar. He is first in five-star catches. The most difficult catches, the ones that have a catch probability between 1% and 25%. He has six of them. He's tied with Lorenzo Kane. Remember, he's not played every day. He's only gotten into 99 games so far. Now, you might be wondering, well, how is he so good? Well, I can tell you one very easy way. He's really, really fast. He is tied for third in baseball in sprint speed. Uh, sprint speed, we measure in feet per second in a player's fastest one-second window. It's a proxy for top speed. Byron Buxton, number one. Billy Hamilton, number two, unsurprisingly. But tied for third with Delano DeShields and Adam Angle, just ahead of Trey Turner, Harrison Bader. So he's incredibly fast. This is all stuff that you could look at on baseball spot. But I want to give you a sneak preview of some other stuff. There is more to life than just being fast. I think that's probably the number one thing you want from an outfielder, um, but there's a lot more to that. So we're working on 
three different metrics and they might not be out publicly for a couple months but you know sneak preview time here uh we're gonna we're gonna measure reaction time you know kind of like a player's first step that'll be feet covered in one and a half seconds from pitch release and we're gonna be able to do that in both the right direction and the wrong direction because that's important uh we're gonna have burst which will be the next one and a half seconds so feet covered from 1.5 seconds to three seconds so essentially acceleration and we're gonna have route which is gonna measure extra feet basically right direction versus wrong direction in the first three seconds. Harrison Bader is currently number one in our burst metric, which is feet covered from one and a half seconds to three seconds after the pitch release. He is three feet above average in the right direction. So basically that means as he's accelerating, he's going to be three feet ahead of anybody else, the average player in baseball. Uh, For some context, the worst in that metric, Reese Hoskins, converted first baseman, minus three and a half feet. So between the best and the worst, you can say that Bader is six feet above the worst guy. That's a big deal, right? There's also going to be a combination of all three of those metrics. We are tentatively calling that boot up time, but I don't know if that's actually going to stick. And the idea here is that in the first three seconds towards the ball from the pitch release, who covers the most feet? This is my favorite thing in the world. Harrison Bader is tied for number one. And I know this is a Harrison Bader segment. Do you know who he's tied for number one with? Ender Inciarte. Perfect. The uh, the, well, the gold standard of amazing defensive outfielders who aren't it's purely pure burners. Perfect. Remember, all of this so far is independent of sprint speed, which Bader has very much of in Ciarte. Uh, doesn't so much. So we'll be able to build things. Scouting reports. Jackie Bradley, for example, will say has uh, an elite reaction time. Uh, not so great route running because he moves off the ball very quickly, but not always in the right direction. And he's got average speed, which I think is a perfect description of Jackie Bradley Jr. Here's the weird thing about Harrison Bader. Uh, nobody saw this coming. I looked at some old scouting reports here. If you look at MLB Pipeline last year, he said he doesn't have one plus tool, but he can do a lot of things well. Fangraphs last year, some organizations think he can moonlight in center field. Baseball Prospectus in 2016 says there's no plus tool capable of handling center. Where did this guy come from? I think this is, I think that generally there's like, we haven't always done, we like, I think there's sort of like teams scouting speed I think teams for guys who don't steal a lot of bases in the minors has kind of been a little bit of a gray area. There's some guys as we've seen with sprint speed who come up and are much faster than you think. And if like, yeah, I know we time home to first and all that, but like there's a lot of guys we're starting to see who are much better defenders or much faster than you think. And people miss on it because they're not stealing bases. Um, you know, a couple examples, uh, Brad Zimmer comes to mind. Uh, Juan Lagares kind of reminds me of Bader in the sense that, like, when he was coming up, no one saw him as a plus defender center fielder. And then he got to the majors, and I was like, oh, my goodness, this guy's really good. But he's not this fast. No, he's not this fast. But he is fast. But the, po- the point remains, or even even sort of things like this, of being able to measure burst, et cetera. You know, obviously, now we're in, we're in the nascent stages of doing it. But, like, um, these are things that you could understand why, why people miss on, because there's never been a good stat to track track it now that they have traded uh tommy fam to tampa bader has kind of taken over as the everyday center fielder in st louis and i'm interested to see what he does for the rest of the season like he should be playing every day yeah and i mean and i obviously the cardinals liked him enough to trade fam granted fowler got hurt the next like day so it really hurt their outfield depth but bader is hitting a respectable 269 333 396 of course he's got a 364 batting average on balls in play but it should be high which should be high for a speed guy um so if he can sort of even if he's a little bit below average to hitter, right now he's got a weighted runs created plus of 99, so he's basically average. Even as, like, if he's a 90 and he's playing this kind of defense and batting eighth, it's like a, he's an asset. It's like a three-win player, yeah. give or take, or um, two is league average. So, you know, I think that, like, you know, uh, Lagarde is actually kind of a good comp 
although Ligars can't stay healthy, but like that's kind of a good comp of the kind of player that, that Bader probably is. While we're on the subject of St. Louis Cardinals, Cardinals uh, defensive outfielders, Marcelo Zuna, uh, this came up the other day. Obviously not having a great season and never really been able to figure out why, but it's been well reported that he has been dealing with uh, tendonitis and inflammation in his right shoulder since last season, which the Cardinals knew about when they traded for him. Now we ran his max effort arm strength leader uh, numbers for the last few years. Now, let's be upfront. We don't track every single outfield arm strength throw. So that's why there's no public leaderboard yet. But of the ones that are tracked, um, he has gone from 92.1 miles an hour in 2015 to 89 miles an hour the next year, 81.8 last year, 77.9 miles an hour this year. This is not an average of all his throws. These are the average of the, uh, we, we look at his 90th percentile, take the average above that to try to get to these competitive throws among outfielders with a minimum of 75 throws this year. He ranks dead last. Now, part of that, I think, is because Chris with a K Davis is a DH now. But, oh, man, they, teams have been abusing him on the bases the last couple of I mean, weeks. I think even Chris, Chris with a K Davis cracked the 80s. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and this, uh, you know, fantastic job by, uh, by Jen Langosh, sort of the great, a perfect combination of kind of using data to help tell a story. And it is jarring when you see, see, the, see, the, uh, see the number. I saw other Cardinals beat reporters tweeting this story. You know it's a good story when other reports like, oh, wow, this is really good. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, it's not good for the Cardinals. No. I, and it's like it's weird because he's had such a lousy offensive season, and I, I've dug into this a couple times, and it's harder hit rate is fine. Like, all these underlying numbers, everything seems fine, but we know something's not fine. And I, I can't figure out if this is messing up with his his timing, but it's it's not great. It's just not great. No, and the fact that Moseliak sort of acknowledged that the team was aware of it when they traded for him, it's, that's also not great. Let's, uh, let's finish off with some hot Colorado Rockies pitching talk. Um, Their starting rotation has been legitimately great. And I hear a lot from Rockies fans who say, well, everybody dings the hitters for playing in Coors Field, which is true. And they don't give enough credit to the pitchers for having the same issues. And okay, that's fair. I think I have an idea why, by the way. It's because when you see a Rockies hitter who is boosted by Coors Field, like let's say Nolan Arenado, you will see them at the top of leaderboards, right? But when you see a Rockies pitcher who's been dinged by Coors Field, you'll see them like in the middle and it won't even really stand out. I think that makes sense. Anyway, since July 1st, the Rockies starting pitching has the best weighted on base in baseball at 279, just ahead of the Philadelphia. Weighted, weighted on base against. Uh, weighted on base against, yes. Just ahead of Philadelphia, St. Louis, the Dodgers, and Houston. That's more than a month now. That's awesome. Uh, the bullpen has been such a disaster. Oh my, Yo, did you oh, watch the game last night against the Dodgers? I did not, but I saw... Oh, man. <laughs> I saw someone post a, a screen grab from like the game last night that showed like McGee, Davis, and Brian Shaw over the Craig, last month. Craig Goldstein posted that. Oh, my goodness. It's it's grim. And it's not even just the last month for them. Like, Adovino has been fantastic. And those are their three big offseason signings. And that, I don't even think that included Mike Dunn, who they went out and got the year before. Uh, the, rota- the, the bullpen has the third worst weighted up base this year ahead of only Toronto and Kansas City. It's been a disaster. And, and last night's game, uh, after a very good Tyler Anderson start against the Dodgers and a very big comeback against the Dodgers bullpen, it was a total kick in the pants. Um, the Rockies have been so up and down, and you know I think people want to know why we don't talk about the Rockies pitching more this year, and I think part of it's because they had a 620 ERA in June. That was the worst in baseball. It, it takes a while to like wash that stink off, but they did. In July, they had a 316 ERA. That was the best in team history. That was the best month they've ever had. Like, that's objectively impressive um i wanted to know why right as a team they're not that great in strikeouts or walks like 15 15th in strikeout rate you know league average 22nd in walk rate below average uh they do have the number two ground ball rate which makes a lot of sense here's what uh really stands out about them though they are great 
at preventing barrels. Now, barrels is a StatCast metric we came up with to express the perfect combination between exit velocity and launch angle. The idea is that it has to be uh, a combination of at least a minimum 500 expected batting average and 1500 expected slugging percentage. But the average of a barrel is way higher than that. It's like 800 and 3000. It's what you want if you're a hitter and it's what you want to avoid if you're a pitcher. Right now, as a team, uh, 5.8% of their batted balls have been barrels. That's the second best in baseball. For the starting pitchers, it's actually the best in baseball at 5.4%. And what's cool about it is this really helps to get away from the park factor a little bit because it's not accounting for the actual outcomes or, or your defense. At home, they've allowed the sixth fewest, and on the road, they've allowed the third fewest. So that's pretty cool. Um, they've really... For a team that doesn't get a lot of strikeouts or walks, this is how you succeed, I think, is you do not allow these incredibly high-value batted balls to happen. Especially also when you're a team that's playing an outfield of guys who aren't that great. Like, they've got Charlie Blackman and Carlos Gonzalez. I I finally saw an article today from a hometown. I think it was somebody from the Denver Post who said, it's time to move Charlie Blackman out of center field. And when when the hometown guys, who are usually very supportive of that team, start saying that, I think it's time to move him out of center field. And they just signed him to a long-term deal. So if they're going to do it, they might as well do it. They they should do it soon. There's, um, you know, the the Rockies have been oddly terrible in the first inning. Their pitchers have a 7.67 ERA. That is, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. That is the seventh worst First inning ERA in baseball history. I, I say that not because it's indicative of anything, but because it's weird. And all the teams ahead of them, with the exception of the 2000 uh, Rangers, and we know that those Rangers teams of the early 2000s had just awful pitching, played in the 1950s or before. Uh, that's true. There's some Senators team here. I think that's the Philadelphia Athletics who's first there. Uh, those are some high-quality baseball teams. I, that doesn't mean anything. It's just really weird. Uh, there are two guys on the Rockies, three guys actually I wanted to focus on in the starting rotation. First of all, Tyler Anderson. I feel like Tyler Anderson is one of the most underrated pitchers in baseball. Uh, I looked at the lowest hard hit rate by starters going back to 2016, minimum of 500 batted balls. Number one is Brent Suter. Just got hurt, but that makes a lot of sense. He doesn't throw hard. He doesn't get a lot of strikeouts, but you can't hit him hard. Number two is CC Sabathia. Makes a lot of sense. Anderson is third with a 28.3% hard hit rate and had some pretty good names. Kenta Maeda, Kershaw, Chase Anderson, Kyle Hendricks, Blake Snell on this list. Like That's a list you want to be on. That makes a lot of sense for how a guy like that can succeed. And I really, I, I like Tyler Anderson a lot, but I have to be honest, I've never gotten on board the Kyle Freeland train. Um, I know everybody wanted him to be, I've heard from some fans saying that he should be like the Cy Young front runner because he's got a 218 ERA in course field. That's objectively crazy because Scherzer and Nola and DeGrom exist. He's been very good. I'm yeah. not saying otherwise. Um, he actually has the best home ERA a Rocky pitcher has ever had, minimum 50 innings. But what I want to know is, uh, is it going to stand up, right? So you look at some of the advanced ERA estimators. So by FIP, 399. His season number this year is 304, right? So FIP says 399. Our expected weighted on base ERA equivalent says 424. Baseball Prospectus says 401 at DRA. That all sounds kind of right to me. He has a 19% strikeout rate that is 56th of 75 qualifiers, 8% walk rate, which is 51st. It does have a 48% ground ball rate. Ground balls are good. It's pretty Especially hard, in Coors Field. Especially in Coors Field. Um, I, I don't know. I think if Freeland is like a good, solid, above average pitcher and not the guy who's like fourth in baseball reference war right now, uh, I don't know. Do you have do you have differing opinions on Kyle Freeland or do you have any opinions on Kyle Freeland? I, I, I'm sort of with you. Um, I find Anderson more interesting. I think that just because like I feel like that class of pitcher has really sort of like disappeared. The like he's not a soft tossing lefty, but like like sort of like the the fastball change like guy. Like, it's just, you know, and Sabathia is that now, but, like, Sabathia at one point was, you know, could throw really hard and such. It's like, you know, 
He's just, but the like the, the classic Tom Glavin mold of pitcher has kind of gone away, and like Anderson is kind of like the closest thing we have nowadays to that. I made a gif of him like two years ago, uh, with like overlaying him and Clayton Kershaw because they both kind of do like that weird stop hitch thing, like in the middle of their windup, uh, and I, I thought that was really cool. I don't think people have focused enough on Jonathan Gray. I know that he got demoted, and people, you know, as higher A. So I think if you weren't following him closely, you'd think, well, he's just terrible. And then the demotion never really made sense. Like his peripherals were all really good. He's been back now for four starts, 29 and two thirds innings, 152 ERA. He's allowed a line of 140, 196, 220, uh, and against some pretty good teams: Seattle, Houston, St. Louis, Milwaukee. All teams in the playoff race. He, I don't really know what's changed. I haven't looked into it that closely, but John Gray has been absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm on board the John Gray trip. Yes, uh, it's good to see that he sort of turned that around. And I'm like the Rockies. It's they're in it. I keep waiting for them to fade, and every time I look at the standings, it's like, oh, they're like three. They're three games, three and a half out in the wild card and division. So like they're kind of they're in both. The the they are in the middle of a four game set with the Dodgers, and it just came out today that the, the Kenley Jansen is going to be out for a month or so because he's got another uh, flare up of his of his heart issues. Uh, you know, obviously that's not good for the Dodgers, and it helps the Rockies. But I don't think I ever thought I'd live to see the day where I would see a contending Rockies team pulled forward by their really good starting rotation and dragged down by what continues to be a dreadful offense. Like the fact that they didn't get a bat, we've been talking about this for two years. Uh, it continues to blow my mind. But anyway, I guess the takeaway here is I'm on board with the Rockies rotation. There's a lot of good young talent here. They still could get a bat? They still could get a bat. Who? Jose Bray, he's starting to hit again. I know he was kind of lousy for a couple months, but... Yeah, it's, I, you know, it's sort of... Um... It would have to be outfield or first base, right? That's the only place they would put a bat. They're not going to actually go replace DJ LeMahieu. I don't think there's a catcher to get. Um, so, Jose Breu, I think everybody wants them to go get Mark Reynolds, which, fine, whatever. Could they put Josh Donaldson at first? That would be interesting. Oh, I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. Well, sure, he's got he's to play first and prove that he's healthy, but um, he's definitely clearing waivers when he when he gets yeah, back. That. Uh, okay, that's not it's not quite as good as the Asia trade for Bryce Harper from you, but um, I, it's good. I like that one a lot. I think he'd be a great fit there. Anyway, that is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.